0: grandchildren here. That left us with the two youngest grandchildren, the 10-month-old and the two-year-old. Uh, they were little angels uh, all night long, uh, but I turned on the light this morning when I got up, and boom, they woke up, and then we were on duty. So so that was interesting. Uh, I reared five kids, and thought I remembered everything about that. I had to recall all the nursery rhymes, all the songs, all the stories. Uh, and uh, trying to feed the, the babies this morning, uh, I started with the 10-month-old sitting up on the bed and me and my knees going like this. And Carl goes, you put the baby on your lap. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm rusty. So I... I Sat on the bed. I, I put the baby on my lap, but I forgot to put the arm behind my back, so the arm was loose. You know, grabbing at things. But eventually, figured it out. We got it, we got the babies fed, and the babies are here and, and uh, uh, sitting like little angels again. Uh, so everything is wonderful. Uh, we are in First uh, John uh, chapter four, and this is the heart of the passage. Uh, regarding the love that God has for us. In in, in fact, as part of the uh, declarations of who God is to us and his character traits, this is the famous passage that straight out says clearly, God is love in the sense that uh, every true definition of what love means finds its origin uh, in God himself. But the chapter opens uh, with the test regarding what you believe. You remember there's these uh, interweaving of both a theological test and a practical test. The theological test is regarding the denial of the Incarnation. So it'll begin with that, and then it will move into the ethical test, uh, the, the most poignant of which Uh, is do I love my brother? Uh, The other aspect was covered in greater detail earlier in the chapter of am I obeying his commandments and am I uh, taking sin seriously? Uh, But we will uh, first then look uh, at the denial uh, of the heretics that Jesus Christ really is fully God and fully man and that an actual incarnation has taken place, that the second member of the Trinity has joined us as a member of our race, Fully God and fully man. I'm reading from 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So you can tell he's speaking about the spirits that are behind the prophets. Verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, of which you heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you... Than he who is in the world, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It might hit your ears a little strange uh, that he speaks of spirits behind the prophets and to test the spirits to see if they really are from God. This goes again to the question of being gullible and not just being a baby bird with your mouth wide open and letting the mother bird put whatever they want in your mouth. That's exactly what I did this morning. I fed one of the babies... uh, Applesauce, I fed the other baby little bits of uh, peaches. What was funny is we got to the last peach at the bottom of the little cup, and it was slightly torn. And she says, I am not going to eat that one. (laughs) Well, at least she's discerning. We don't think of preachers or teachers in the sense of the Spirit that is behind them. But we should. If you remember, the the preacher is supposed to, in some sense, disappear from view as we are seeking from the Holy Spirit to receive nourishment from his Word. The speaker, in a sense, should not be getting in the way of the communication of the Holy Spirit through the written Word to us as we're seeking to learn from the Spirit. So, every time you hear preachers and teachers, even if you're at a good place that has reliable teaching, uh, whether you're at a school that has reliable professors, please never turn off the Spirit's leading of discernment to distinguish the Spirit that's behind that prophet, that preacher, that teacher. It's a command of ours to test the spirits. The particular test that he speaks of here is a very reliable test. In fact, among all of the heresies that we've been experiencing in the church, overwhelmingly heresies are largely about the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. Those are the areas where they normally depart uh, from what we would consider orthodox or straight uh, Christianity, New Testament uh, teaching of Christianity. He is saying, you don't realize that it's not just an academic or intellectual exercise that we're undergoing right now. This is a spiritual exercise. Take, for example, when we break bread together to remember the Lord as he asked us to remember him. Some people think, because we're not Roman Catholic and because we don't believe in transubstantiation and we don't believe that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ when it enters our mouth or that the cup actually becomes the blood of Christ. We view them as symbols. That it doesn't really matter whether we eat that or not or drink that or not. And that we think that it is so symbolic that if we skip the pianist or the organist or the lady who got up to take her child out who was disturbing the meeting or something like that, that that's perfectly fine. What I want you to notice, however, is that the Scripture teaches us that when we come together to remember the Lord and we eat that bread, there is an actual spiritual fellowship that is taking place with Jesus Christ in the eating of that. Now, you might say, well, you're making that stuff up. I am not making that stuff up. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10 regarding going to the feasts with everybody else in the city, where they were having these great communal meals, where you could do all kinds of business and talk shop and things like that. He says, you can't go. Why? Why? He says, because that meat has been sacrificed to idols. Well, you happen to know that he has said elsewhere that when you go to the marketplace, don't even ask where the meat's been because the meat's not demon possessed. So just don't ask, buy the meat, go home, eat it quietly, and you're fine. But he says, if someone invites you to his home and he starts to serve you meat, and he says, oh, by the way, this meat's been offered to idols. He says, you can't eat it because they've made a point that they're serving you meat offered to idols. I'll read to you the First Corinthians 10 passage because I want you to be discerning when you listen so that you aren't gullible to hear false teaching. This is First Corinthians 10, beginning with verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. The point there is, the bread is singular, the body is of believers is singular unity is stimulated by the spiritual ministry that takes place in our lives as we break bread together so it's not just wholly symbolic a spiritual effect takes a place by unifying us through this we are fellowshipping with christ Listen to him. He says, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then that an idol is anything or what is offered to idols or anything? Because remember, the meat that's going to the idols doesn't itself get demon possessed. But what does it represent? What is happening when you eat the meat offered to idols? He says, rather the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons because there there is no real other God that they're sacrificing to. They think they're sacrificing to some other God. There is no other God. There is only one God. The power behind these idols, he says, are demonic powers. And when they sacrifice, they're sacrificing to demons and not to God. And listen to this clearly. I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. Therefore, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Do you see the analogy? It's the same thing. You're either celebrating demons or you're celebrating Christ because there is a spiritual effect that takes place. You have to be careful how you do this. You can't partake of the Lord's table and the Lord of demons, the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than they? So back to 1 John again. Test the spirits behind your teachers, your preachers, your counselors, to see if they're from God. And he says, how would you test them? Do they believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Those people are from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In fact, he actually says there is a counterfeit Christ. Ultimately, it will be that famous Antichrist that John will write about in the Revelation of Jesus Christ. But he says there are already the spirit of Antichrist in this world, and there are little Antichrists running around. You've heard that he's coming. He's now already in the world in the form of these little Antichrists. But he says, verse 4, You, as believers, are from God, little children, and have overcome them. In other words, they do not have power over you. Because greater is he who is in you, that is the person of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Spirit, than he who is in the world. Some of you have seen those scary movies about demons and have wondered like, wow, how scared should I be of demons? You should take it quite seriously in the sense that uh, the power of Satan is strong. He's <laughs> lived longer than we have. He is uh, stronger, more powerful, and wiser than we are uh, The angels don't even uh, go to fight against them uh, without uh, great seriousness. We should take the danger seriously, but we should not be so terrified that we forget that greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. And he straight out says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Much like the First Corinthians 10:13 passage regarding temptation, where he says, choose the way of escape. And I'm convinced in many cases we don't even see the way of escape until we've already chosen it. Similarly, he says, though you may not feel strong enough uh, to resist satanic attack or, or his temptations or his power. If you resist the devil in the power of the spirit, he has no choice but to retreat. When we put on the armor of God in Ephesians 6, it's God's armor we're wearing, not our armor. It's God's empowerment that empowers us. And so as we resist him, he is forced to flee because God empowers us. Now, if we are frustrated that the opponents within the church will not listen to us, he says, do you expect them to? Uh, Listen to 5 and 6. They're from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world. The world listens to them. We're from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So if we feel frustrated about these kinds of teachers who he says went out from us because they really were not of us. If they walk away, if they stomp off, if they won't listen to the truth, we should not be that surprised. When Jesus was talking to the religious leaders of of Israel, including the Pharisaical group, uh, he was frustrated that they felt they knew God and were rejecting him. And he was saying, if you knew God, you would recognize me. You would hear his voice in mine. If you were my sheep, you would hear my voice and you would follow me. The reason you don't is because you aren't my sheep. And you don't know God and you do not hear my voice because I am doing exactly what the Father has asked me to do. Brothers and sisters, may we please be discerning. He now switches to the second test. Or you could call it the third if we're going to use uh, uh, keeping his commandments as uh, the uh, the, the first of the second kind of test. It is the test. Do I love my brother? And frankly, this is hard for us because we have watered down love to physical attraction, to appreciation of another, to what we call like, uh, to what we call goodness. Uh, We have watered love down into pretty much the kinds of things we hear on the radio. If you did a theology of love from listening to the radio, uh, it would be highly sexualized. It would be highly oriented towards pleasing oneself. It would be highly oriented towards fulfilling my base desires. And so even in their age, John has to go back and say, Let me explain to you that love isn't even our idea. Listening to him teach this way, I get the impression we as human beings would have no idea what true, godly, sacrificial love is had he not exhibited that to us. In fact, it's part of the reason I believe the Scripture is because there are certain character traits of God that I believe we as humans would have never invented. If you've ever studied world religions, the theology of the love of God is unique to Christianity. The theology of the grace of God is unique to Christianity. And I am personally convinced that we would have no idea of grace, we would have no idea of love, If God had not shown those things to us. And in my personal evangelism, as I talk to people, I describe God's love and God's grace to them. And I point out to them, do you think you could have ever conceived this by yourself? It is so shocking. It is so different that if we're going to love our brothers as he's asked us to, we need to hear how he describes love to us. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is Love. One of the things we do understand, I think, is the concept of a spiritual gift. It's not identical with a talent, although it could overlap with a uh, human talent. But what it is, is an empowerment of the Holy Spirit as He indwells us to serve members of the body of Christ for the building up of the body in love for the presenting of every man and woman complete in Christ. A spiritual gift is an empowerment of the Spirit. It means then that when we say, I don't think I can do this, we may be speaking accurately, but we actually do these things because the Spirit empowers us to carry those things out. In the same way, then, when he commands us to love our brothers, and we'd immediately say, that's too hard. He's not asking us to do this in the power of our own flesh or the power of our own human ability. That is inhuman. Hence, we should not expect that unbelievers would have any ability to do this. Only a believer who's filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, is able to truly love his brother self-sacrificially, to truly prioritize his needs over our own. That love comes from God. And hence, when we are trying to be assured that we do have a relationship with God, one of the best tests, he says in this book, is to say, I am shocked that God has placed his love in my heart, and I actually love these people self-sacrificially. If you have come to a level of maturity in Christ, and it shouldn't take long, and it shouldn't be that uh, refined of maturity, it really should be true of every believing Christian. You should sense within you, wow, wow, God has given me a love that I didn't recognize before. God has given me a love that I actually care for these people. I actually want to help these people. I actually want to sacrifice for these people. I actually want to put their needs above my own. I don't recognize myself. If you can sense that, you could say, well, where's that coming from? It's coming from God. That's God's empowerment. And you'd say, that then is one of the assurances that I really am of him. I must love my brothers. Verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. Demonstrated, made known that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. We normally think the live through him would be eternal life, and we think of it as future after we have died. The scripture doesn 't use it only in that manner; it begins at the point of salvation John ten ten speaks of abundant life. John seven speaks of rivers of life flowing from within us by the way in their their concept of what is a a uh, a river of life it's a life like the a river like the merced a river that flows with fresh cool water and using that as a metaphor of the spirit within us these rivers of living water flow from our soul so he says as we have come to know god he has given us life and we live through him and that life is an empowerment to love one another verse 10 in this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If we were looking for a definition of God's love, most of us turn to First Corinthians 13, and that's perfectly fine. However, there's no singular verse better, divine the love of God. Than this verse right here. Because he says. What more could I have possibly done. Than to save you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You rebelled against me. My holiness demands justice. That would mean your destruction. So we are at a very hard place. I don't want to destroy you though you should be destroyed, how could you be saved? Well, it certainly isn't by keeping the law or being good enough. In fact, Paul reasoned if salvation could have been achieved by the law, then Christ never would have come and never would have died because he would have just said, well, then keep the law then. In fact, Paul argues the law was never to save. It was always to convict. It was always to cause us to say, I fall short. Instead, he says, in this is love. It's not defined by us. It's not that we loved God. In fact, we didn't love first. He first loved us, but that he loved us, and he sent the second person of the Trinity, God's Son, to join us as a member of our race, to identify with us so that he could be the new Adam. And by the way, Angels don't marry or have little baby angels or anything. There's no race of angels. They are not genetically tied to each other at all. We are genetically tied on purpose. Joe, you hear here getting this? <clears throat> we are genetically tied on purpose so that what Adam did affects us, and so what Jesus does affects us as well. Jesus, by the way, are there creatures on other planets? Jesus is not a Martian. He's not a Venetian. He's an earthling. He joined us as a member of the human race. NASA can look all at once. It can send men to Mars if they want. They're not going to find creatures on Mars. Humanoids or something like that. Jesus is a human being descended from Adam as far as his humanity is concerned, yet without sin. His deity is the deity of coming from the Holy Spirit himself. He is the same as he was before in heaven, yet he has now joined us as a human being. God gave his Son to be the propitiation. That's a $10 word. It means, at its most basic, satisfaction. It means that God's wrath was satisfied by Jesus' payment on our behalf. We should have died. Christ died in our place. He paid our penalty. God's wrath is extinguished. It is satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross. Now, remember I said this is unique to Christianity. There's no other world religion that comes close. In fact, every other world religion is a religion about man seeking to achieve betterment through that religion. When I was a kid, Because I grew up in California, we studied Aztec culture, so I knew about their religion. I knew about the human sacrifice that they did. To appease the anger of their gods, they would take what was their very best, a young virgin woman, and they would sacrifice her to their deity. Uh, We traveled to Mexico a lot on vacation, and one time we were in Mexico City, and we thought, let's go to the Anthropological Museum. And so we're touring the Anthropological Museum, and I was at the Aztec section where they were talking about uh, their human sacrifice. And they actually had a real chakmul, which is the instrument where they put the beating human heart that they had just cut out of that virgin teenage girl that was the best that they could offer. And I'm standing in front of this. It looked like a jackal with its legs like this and its belly up and its belly was formed into a bowl. And they put the heart in this bowl just moments before cut out of that girl. And I stood there for a long, long time. And I thought about world religions and I thought about the Aztecs and I thought about how they were trying to cover their sin and keep their God from being angry at them by giving what their best was as a sacrifice to them. And I thought, That is exactly the opposite of the truth. We don't die to appease God because it would never appease God. Our sin is much more than that. God died in our place. The reason why Jesus has to be the God-man is he has to be human in order to die. To take that same penalty that we deserve to pay. The reason why he has to be divine is so that the value of his death is infinite, so that it could pay for as many as would believe. He has to be both God and man at the same time. It is amazing to think of the love of God. And he says, this is the love I have demonstrated to you. I gave my son. Earlier in the week, I mentioned how Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac was academic to me until I became a father, until I actually thought my way through it. If I were to have to sacrifice my own son and I became nearly nauseous at the thought of the bravery of Abraham willing to go through it because he believed God would have to resurrect him from the dead. We don't have to do that because God has done that for us. As I've wrestled, why would God ever ask Abraham to do something that is so contrary to everything he would know would be right? Why would he do that? And I was thinking to cause Abraham to realize what it would be like to give his son. In the text of Genesis 22, it says that he was willing because God wanted to know, do you love me more than you love my son? Will you demonstrate your love and obedience? We've had troubles with you in the past, Abraham. Will you now believe me and trust me in this? Abraham was demonstrating his trust and his faith in God and saying, like, I'm not going to be doubting you. I'm not going to be lying about my wife. I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to do what you ask. But what he acted out dramatically, what he felt in his heart, Was what God feels like when he has to sacrifice his son. But God actually had to go through it. And just as Abraham believed, then God would have to raise him from the dead. That's exactly what happened to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He was raised from the dead. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, he says it so gently. We ought to love one another. I'll say it much more strongly in that. If God so loved us, what right would we possibly have to say, I'm going to close my heart against you. (laughs) And I'm going to have the world's goods. And I'm going to have the wherewithal where I could help you, but I'm not going to help you. That's crazy. If God did this for me, How could I possibly close my heart against you? And that leads me to the higher level where he said, If he laid down his life for me, would I be willing to lay my life down for my brother? The five martyrs in Ecuador had rifles to defend themselves. And as they were going to make their first contact, they discussed among themselves, are we going to use these rifles? And they said, we're ready to meet God. They are not. So they had the rifles and they were willing to fire them into the air to scare them. But they weren't willing to point them at these people that they wanted to see come to know God. They laid down their lives for these people that they had not even yet met, but who are now saved, and many of them are already now with God, because of their willingness to lay down their lives for these. Verse 12. No one has beheld God at any time. There have been apparitions in the sense in which he has given Moses a glimpse of what it would be like to look at his backside. He's not actually seeing God. God is spirit. He's invisible. He can't be seen. No one has beheld God any time. However, listen to this, this is interesting. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And he's about to say, Guess how they see. God at work. They see him through us. They don't see God visibly. He's invisible. But they see God working through us because he has perfected his love in us. Verse 13, By this we know we abide in him when he is in us and he's given us out of his spirit. So we can sense the work of God in our hearts and we sense him opening our hearts in love and we sense him motivating us to love others sacrificially. And he says in verse 14, and we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He uses the same concept. How do we know? He doesn't use the word know. He uses the word see. He doesn't say, how do we know that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world? He says it more powerfully. How do we see That God has sent the Savior, His Son, to be our Savior by seeing the love that He has placed in our hearts because of the love that He has perfected in us. That's how we see it. Go back to Jesus' very clear, very simple statement. They will know you are my disciples by your love. Here it's even more powerful. They will see God in you because of your love. Isn't that beautiful? When we are witnessing to someone else, one of the most poignant ways in which we can communicate the gospel to someone else is to demonstrate to them the love that God has placed in our hearts. Hence, Some of the best evangelism we do is evangelism with people with whom we've already built a relationship. Hence, we need to build relationships with unbelievers so that we can show them the love of God, so that we can tell them the gospel, so that they can come to believe. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. That's back to the test. Do you believe that Jesus has come in the flesh? Is Jesus the Son of God? Verse 16, And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Meaning we have seen the demonstration of the love that Christians have for each other in our local assembly. In the fellowship that we have here at this camp. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God has. Is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. There is no Christianity without this expression of love. We would not have any right to claim to know God if we are not exhibiting the love that he has seen. And demonstrated and proved through us. Verse 17, by this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Therefore, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Some people are so scared of God and are so conscious of their sin that they're terrified to stand before God and be judged. He's saying, if you open yourself up to the love of God and let the love of God flow through you to minister to other people, you will be so confident of your personal relationship with God that fear will leave you and fear of punishment will leave you. And instead of saying, I don't want to meet Jesus at the judgment seat because I know I'm going to suffer loss. You will say, I can't wait to see the Lord and to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your rest. As I told you in the beginning, I was terrified to take tests from Dr. Mitchell. Though I loved him as a man, I loved his teaching. His tests were ridiculous. But I came to say, oh, is that what you expected me? You expect me to work harder? You expect me to study 20, 25 hours for each of the tests? Okay, I'll do it. But that'll take a week. But okay, I'll do it. And I took every class he taught. I went into every test not afraid. I had zero fear. Because remember, by now I knew everything. There wasn't a thing he could ask me I didn't know. Many of his tests are multiple choice. I just covered up the multiple choice answers. I read the question. I knew what the answer was. Then I looked from his multiple choice. Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah, he's right. He he put in the right answer because I knew what was there. If we let God's love flow through us, then we're not scared of God. We love God. It pushes away the fear. We're not afraid to see him at the judgment seat. We're not afraid of punishment. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. We're not the origin of love. We're not the ones who define love. We have no right to do so because we would have never even conceived of it. Let us learn love from God and let's show his sacrificial love of preferring the other person in honor And find assurance of our salvation. And if we need it stated any more clearly, he says in verses 20 and 21, if someone says, and by the way, this is what their teachers said, and it's why they should run those teachers out of town. I love God and yet hates his brother. And he says, frankly, that's the way they treated you. They abused you and you stood there and took it. Don't do that. If someone says, oh, I love God, but he hates his brother. He's a liar. You can't state any more clearly than that. And so let's not sit under liars. Let's not follow liars. Let's listen to the truth, know the truth, believe the truth, teach the truth, live the truth, and love God with all of our hearts. For the one who does not love his brother, brother whom he has seen, because he's right here sitting next to you, cannot love the God whom he's not seen. It's somewhat theoretical in our minds. Well, how do I express my love back to God? How do I show him that I love him? Well, there's a zillion ways. But why don't you start next to with a person sitting right next to you? You see him. Love him. This is a commandment that we have from him. That the one who loves God should love his brother also. Would you pray with me? Father, these concepts are beyond belief in one sense. It is so new to us, so surprising to us, so wonderful to us. Oh, Father, thank you for loving us when we were so undeserving. And surely there are people around us that are undeserving of our love as well. And yet you've loved us. And you have demonstrated that love through personal self-sacrifice. Oh, Father, in the empowerment of the Spirit within us, Empower us to love those next to us. Empower us to love our neighbors. Empower us to know and share your love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.